and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and before I introduce this week's guest, I need to confront the fact I've not put out an episode in a couple of months. It's just, I've been sent a ton of books, and I want to read an author before I interview them. Now, I'm not a man prone to exaggeration, but I've received like a gazillion books. Uh, now, some have been great, and others are fine. But I realized that if I want to build a trusting and loyal audience, I need to make sure that everyone I interview is definitely worth your time. So with that in mind, I'm really pleased to announce that this week's guest is Josh Winning. I'm also pleased to say that I actually discovered Josh's book in a bookshop rather than was sent it. Uh, it's just It has a beautiful cover. Uh, it's really nice. It's called The Shadow Glass. And it's a modern fantasy adventure that like, acts like a love letter to 80s fantasy films. As much as Ready Player One loves 80s sci-fi, The Shadow Glass loves 80s fantasy. But it also has emotional depth and realistic characters. Plus, it's British, so while it's not been as successful as its American counterpart, it's just better. Now, I plan to get this out before Christmas and recommend it all as your Christmas read, but I failed miserably, so sorry, Josh. Uh, however... It's a new year, and I'm hoping that lots of you got Kindles and book vouchers for Christmas and are keen for new book recommendations. So the shadow glass is definitely mine. Also, Josh is a great guest. He's been a film journalist for 15 years, so he understands what a good interview needs far better than I do. My broadcast education has been Spotify and watching YouTube. But anyway, here we are. Now, I'm releasing this in a cold and miserable January, but it was actually recorded in August, so apologies again, for all the references to the heatwave, uh, unless you're listening to this in the Southern Hemisphere, or sometime in the future when it's hot, then you're fine. Anyway, here is the real writing process of Josh Winning. And I'm here with Josh Winning. Josh, hello. Hello. Thank you very much for being here, first of all. And my first question, as always, what are we drinking? Thank you for having me. It's great mm -hmm. to be here. I'm a really yeah. big fan of the podcast, so it's brilliant. Always good. Uh, and <laughs> we're drinking a cup of English breakfast tea. Lovely. With a splash of milk, no sugar. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not usually a tea drinker. This podcast is definitely getting me more into tea as more authors <laughs> request tea. And I've got Taylors of Harrogate English breakfast tea, which I swiped Ooh. from a hotel. Nice choice. I like it. Yeah, I yeah. sometimes I do coffee. Sometimes I do tea. I can switch a bit between the two. Yeah. I find that coffee is like my jet fuel if I <laughs> am desperate to just get a thousand words out. But pretty much an hour later, I'm done. I can't do anything else. Whereas yes. tea is like my um, my endurance drink yeah. if I want to spend a full day writing. Just yes, it it's up. a slow burn caffeine hit. Exactly. Or caffeine release, yeah. Yeah. And your mug is very on brand there with a little hello. Yeah, completely accidental. No, I love it. It's do you know the name? Does that character have a name in Labyrinth? It's just the I little worm he, dude. I think he may have been named after the fact, but okay. for me, he's just the worm. That's what he says in the film. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Like, yeah. Don't want to go that way. Um, no, no. Never go that way. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so this is definitely gonna be an interview where I think because we're 80s children. We're going to be doing a lot of pop culture knowledge reference riffing. And if you're not an 80s child listener, I apologize because I'm not going to explain it. I'm not going to contextualize it. Google exists. But obviously... Go watch the films. Yes. And then 
really appreciate the magic of The Shadow Glass, which is just a fantastic book. Thank you. And I will talk about your process, but I did just really want to say, I really got the Masters of the Universe reference. A lot of people talk about Old Labyrinth and very much the Dark Crystal as clear touchstones. But the fact that it's coming into our world, I was like, oh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of the Masters of the Universe. Because my <laughs> wife hadn't seen it. Oh, no. I mean, and, it's really uh, difficult to find over here. So yeah. you've got to really commit. It's occasionally on film four, okay. but you can't buy it on officially released Blu-ray or DVD. Mm. I've, my copy, I think, is from the Netherlands, but it's quite difficult to find. And yeah, I was upset that it's not that easy to get because I've also run this 80s fantasy film club on mm. Twitter where every once in a while on a Friday night, a bunch of us all watch the same movie and then tweet about it as we're watching yeah. it. And I really wanted to do Masters of the Universe, but yeah. sadly, it's just not widely available enough for other people to be able to watch it, which sucks. No, yeah, absolutely. I was just trying to think, Simon Brew, who does film stories, he did a campaign and did a re-release of Sneakers because he loves that film. And I love Sneakers. I think we need to like reach out to Simon Brew. It's like, yeah. it's clearly he... He is the man who can make these things happen. And I think that Master of the Universe really deserves like a lavish, mm. gorgeous art box kind of Blu-ray release. Yeah. It really does. I know that it's not the best film ever made, frankly, <laughs> but it's just such a cult favorite. Yeah. It's so colorful and mm. different and weird. You can see the references it's drawn from quite yeah. plainly. What a fantastic villain. Yes. Oh, um, gosh, yes. Oh, it's just such a great feel-good yeah. film, I think. Yeah. But anyway, we're here to talk about your writing process. So where I'm speaking to you now in your flat, is this your writing spot? So normally I write in the office, which is the back room of the flat, and I've got it all set up to hopefully in invite lots of nice words. I'm actually in my bedroom at the moment okay. because it hits the magic triangle of quiet and away from the cat and cooler than anywhere else in nice. our flat at the moment we are currently in a heat wave so yes that's why i'm in this room no, that's absolutely fine also soft furnishings are great for audio so yes all, all exactly. good and are you someone who writes the same time every day do you try and keep it as a job and nine to five or is it just when the whim takes you when do you write best or when did you try I, to write i have set writing days because i as my day job, I work three days a week at Radio Times magazine. So I work there Tuesdays to Thursdays on the film unit. And so I have Mondays and Fridays as my so-called writing days. And so they're the days that I really heckle myself to write because I yeah. think you're going to regret it on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday when perhaps you get the writing bug on those days and you won't be able to because you've got mm. other stuff to do during the day. So Mondays and Fridays are my writing days. I'm better in the mornings I think if I can get up, cup of tea, maybe go out for a 20 minute walk first, then come back to my desk, get my feet under the desk and at least try to get out a thousand words. I know that Stephen King says he likes to do 2000, no matter what, come, come what may, he does yeah. 2000 a day. And I'm happy with a thousand. I feel like I've done something. I'm not like sing, go sing it on the mountains happy. I always feel like there's more I can do. Mm. And I'm quite bad at beating myself up if I haven't achieved mm. more than that. I yeah. do try. Yeah, I think with uh, word counts, it's an interesting piece. Everyone's got their own take on it. But I was in an audience listening to Ben Aronovich, and he does notoriously low word counts. Like he will do like 200 words a day or like 500 words in a day. But it, it's the quality of the words. If I don't have to delete those later, and it's just if I work out a plot hole 
or if I just get that scene and that the emotion of that character spot on, doesn't matter how many words it is. Um, oh yeah, I think that. Yeah. I think when I'm advising other writers, when I'm not just beating myself up over my writing, I do advise other writers that every little thing that you do does count. So you could open up the manuscript and you could be feeling completely uninspired that day and a thousand words is ridiculously ambitious. And so actually you could delete a word, you could add a word, you could move a comma around. Yeah. And I think that there is value in just going, every little thing you do is pushing this project mm. forward. I think, I think Jen Williams, who you've had on the podcast, yeah. I think she's talked previously about like spending quality time yes. with a manuscript. And I think that is, it's not like empirically quantifiable, but it's important for mm. keeping the spirit of that project alive. Yeah. And when it comes to the initial genesis of the story and the idea, are you someone who likes to write an outline and map out the plot before writing the main bulk of the manuscript? Or are you more just seat of your pants, let's sit down and got a goal in mind for the end of the day and just see what comes up? I do both. <clears throat> I normally just want to just start writing, just get the ball rolling, see what happens. But I normally reach a point where actually I do have to outline. Yeah. What I've tended to do for the past two books is I've got the title, I've got a one-page synopsis, and that synopsis either covers the entire story in broad strokes, it's one page, it's not in any detail, or it covers maybe like the first three quarters of the story. But I invariably reach a point where I'm like, I actually just have to plan now to see where this is actually going and stop and take stock of what yeah. I've done. Because I end up, no matter what I do, I end up with huge wastage. I always do. With the shadow glass, I wrote and rewrote and I scrapped and moved things around. And but that was all during like the vomit draft period. Mm. Mm. And so what ended up happening was I ended up actually with quite a solid first draft because I'd already scrapped a ton of stuff and moved things around and outlined numerous mm. times, trying to get that first draft out. So it's always a bit like flying by the seat of my pants. Yeah. I wish I had a, a clear route every time. But I don't. And I think it is because every book demands something different. So yeah. even if I go, aha, now I know what I'm doing. The yeah. next book comes along and it's an like, app. Sorry, you haven't got a clue. <laughs> and you've got two projects on at the moment. And one's contracted and uh, one's not. With the contracted one, have they required more of an outline and a plan? They, it, was, it was really interesting. So I signed a two book deal with Putnam Books in the US. They're an imprint of Penguin Random House. And when we were starting to think about the second book, I said to them, what do you actually want? I've got a title and I've got synopsis, but do you want a full outline of the whole book? And they said, oh, don't spoil it for us. We want to go in as spoiler free as possible. Just give us the general gist. And I guess they were looking for the hook. Mm. They wanted to know what the, what the hook is, what's going to make a reader pick it up. Mm. And my initial pitch for them had the title that I'm still using, but it had a slightly different vibe to it. And they were like, mm, we're not really sure if that's quite current and different enough. And it was kind of, we were talking about what is a Josh winning book? We want the same, but different essentially mm. kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, I'm trying to figure out the line of same, but different. And so I went back with a revised pitch, which they really liked and said, yep, go for it. So yeah. they have the one page synopsis but they don't know the ending partly because i don't know the ending either <laughs> <laughs> and is that how you like to start your story ideas is actually with a 
like a hook, like just a scenario, sort of synopsis idea. When do you start developing the characters, the actual world with your stories? Yeah, it's it often is a concept or a, a concept and a feeling. With the Shadow Glass, the concept was simply movie puppets. Mm. And the feeling was a feeling of failure or a feeling of trying to surmount a problem, yeah. but very much still in that nostalgic yeah. uh, arena. But yeah, it's often the concept. And then I immediately start thinking about who the main character is. Why are they the one who is having this story happen to them? Or why are yeah. they in this story? With the shadow glass, the story didn't really come to life until I'd figured out the main character's relationship to the puppets mm. in the story and what they represent to him and why maybe they are the only thing in the world that can help him grow as a person yeah when it seems like he believes the opposite is true mm. and so with my next book which is called burn the negative that book is so much about the main character and it's entirely about her perspective there's no breaks from for perspective whatsoever and to figure her out i had to figure out what her deal was and so that's when I did do a really deep interrogation of her as a character. Mm. And I found, I've talked about him before, and I'm not sure I'll talk about him again, but Will Storr, mm. he wrote a great book called The Science of Storytelling. And he talks about the sacred flaw, which is the thing that the character believes about themselves that is essentially like holding them back right. or has put them in a state of frozen immovability or whatever. They're stuck in their situation, basically. Yeah. And the floor tells them to stay there and that the story confronts them with that floor. And then we see how they react to it, mm. essentially. And I really, that I found that really useful for Burn the Negative and finding out who that character was. And then the story doesn't write itself because nothing is ever that simple. But it definitely gives you a little bit of a, a, an idea of what to throw at them, what yeah. obstacles would be interesting to read about for that mm. particular character. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, like you say, it's like the uh, flaw that they have to overcome and deal with that. It's not a common thing that I think writers have consciously for a central character. And is it your desire to always have that character growth as a central part of your stories? And what sort of inspires that? Is it things from life, just sort of like your own personal growth, or is it the reading that you have of other writers that you kind of aspire to i just think that stories are about change mm. that seems to be the thing that keeps you interested is the constant evolution of both the character and the story itself and i think that the best story or the stories that i love are the ones where everything feels new all the time mm. so every not maybe not every page but every chapter certainly gives you something new and it's building on the foundation of what you've already got so I think that by the nature of storytelling the characters have to change and if they don't change that is also quite interesting I think the sacred flaw thing basically says that if the character overcomes their flaw mm. that's like an uplifting story and a tragedy is that they completely succumb to their flaw so yeah I just I do find that is an interesting question but personally, I just feel like I want to see the character, their evolution from the beginning mm. of the book to the end of the book. And my thing is always, I always want my main characters to do something at the end of the book that you would never imagine that they would have done at the yeah. start of the story. Yeah. I think it gives yeah. a, a nice arc to a mm. story. 
absolutely i think it's also i think it's also ingrained in fantasy and horror storytelling Mm. especially in movies if you look at the final girl trope which bizarrely has now become this like explosive pop culture movement where everyone's talking about final girls like we've been talking about these guys since the 80s but it's that trope is all about change it's all about the supposed wallflower innocent Mm. character discovering their inner metal and actually confronting the monster but i think that it's just innate to a certain type of storytelling maybe yeah absolutely and Talking about fantasy and horror and the things you enjoy to write as well as read, I loved in The Shadow Glass, the world beyond and you know how you made that uh, familiar, but it very much its own world with its own magic system and everything. Is that something that you're keen to do in your future books? I'm not sure with Burn the Negative if there's that same magical realism aspect to it, but that level of world building, is that something you enjoy and how did you go about doing it? Yeah, I find that really fun. I think... I like it more as something that like a, a pop culture relic, but I don't really feel like I'll ever write high fantasy novels. Okay. I don't think I'm going to be like the next Brandon Sanderson. Not, <laughs> not that anybody can possibly <laughs> touch that throne. Yeah. So I think I'm more interested in interrogating the story within a story that definitely comes from growing up in the nineties where suddenly we lived in this era of sort of postmodernism it was called yep. i love 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 the scream films i loved the way it played around with the stab franchise within yep. the scream franchise yep. the way that the characters were like confronted with their doppelgangers or yeah. like the pop culture versions of themselves and they make jokes about it like in the first scream nev campbell says i'll probably be played by tori spelling and then <laughs> in scream 2 she is played by tori spelling yep. i just find that stuff just really fun And so that's why with The Shadow Glass and Burn the Negative, to a degree, I wanted to find a way to play around with the fictional narrative within the story that you're reading Mm. as a book. So yeah, it was was really fun. It was a big job with The Shadow Glass, especially, because I wasn't just coming up with the story of the book. I had to come up with the story of the film within the book. And I also had to come up with the world within the film, within the book but also the world of the book and how it views the world from the film in the book. So it was very, it made perfect sense as I was plotting it and planning it all out. But when you try to explain it, it just sounds like utter madness. Yeah, there is the world within the film, but also in your book, there are excerpts of interviews with the director and there's internet forums and there's critical uh, reviews of the film, the DVD extras and sort of like commentary aspects. So There is this meta level, which is really interesting. With that, did you have to do any research to get the tone of those aspects right to to make it feel authentic? Or was it just, as you're such a passionate fan and this is the world that you live in as a film critic and as a a film journalist, was it quite easy and fun to do that? Or was it actually quite a challenge to get that authentic? Oh, I'm glad that you felt it was authentic. It was just really fun. I've been a film journalist for almost 15 years. And before that, I had websites where I wrote film reviews and I interviewed people for those as well. So I've basically been doing film writing of some sort since I was 15, 16 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. And actually, I have on my desk a couple of 
hardback notebooks from when I was a teenager. I think they're from the year 2000. And they're basically scrapbooks where I would cut out pages from magazines. I'd print out things from the internet, even just like film stills from the internet. I'd print out pages of the IMDb like when the IMDb was just starting and I would paste them all into these books because I, I just loved sort of possessing these things that I loved so much and so when it came to doing the shadow glass I did a bit of research into things like how are Wikipedia pages actually written because mm. it's quite difficult to write that robotically and that <laughs> yeah. clinically because they keep it very clean and very clear and yeah. you can't write about yourself I've looked <laughs> so I did a bit there I looked a bit into reddit because there's a reddit article but mostly I just did my own thing really which was yeah it was fun and it, I liked the fact that this whim that I had to do this it ended up being a great tool for just getting a ton of exposition in there in a fun way that yeah. didn't feel like you were being told a load of stuff. No. And yeah, it's you know, sort of fanboying out again, very unprofessionally. <laughs> it's just, I've, I feel like I've seen a lot of that done poorly, where mm. sort of people try and, oh, I want to do this exposition, I'm going to do it as a newspaper article, but it doesn't sound like a newspaper article. And it's just, I don't think that would actually get past a copy editor. <laughs> You know, and it's just, have you ever read a newspaper article? Or, you know, you have this uh, forum stuff where people are trying to represent teenagers chatting on an internet oh, forum. Yeah. And it's so cringe. And I just think of, oh, was it uh, Steve Buscemi in 30 Rock, where he's like, all right, young people, I'm, you know, sort of like down <laughs> with the youth, carrying a skateboard, and he's got the yeah. music band on his T-shirt. And it's just tone deaf, because it's just, oh, you're aware of this thing but you haven't like lived and breathed it. And when you've got a Reddit forum on there, I was just like, yeah, I've been on forums. This feels like the kind of chat I'd see. And it was just, you've either spent a lot of time on forums or you've really done the research to see how forums are handled. That's yeah. why I say it just felt really authentic. But I guess what you're saying is that, yeah, this is just your life on a page. And it's it really awesome. is. I okay. did. I know that's the thing. Like I went on a podcast a couple of months ago where they wanted me to present a weird bit of research that I found while researching the shadow glass. And I was like, oh, I didn't actually really do any research <laughs> for the shadow glass yeah. because it was completely lived experience. And mm. it really is like a distillation of everything that I've either loved or done professionally, which so, is, yeah. it's great. It feels like, oh, okay, that's a really great use of what I've learned yeah. so far. And so going into your second book, Burn the Negative, is there enormous pressure to like, <laughs> oh shit, now I have to research. <laughs> so how's your approach differing with the tricky second follow-up? So my trick for the tricky second follow-up is just do a different genre. I've done 80s fantasy with a shadow glass and burn the negative pivots more into 90s horror. So that was my way out of that, basically. But it's got the same mixed media setup as the shadow glass. There definitely is a feeling of like people are going to say, oh, it's not as good or I prefer the shadow glass. And I'm just going to have to just accept that that probably is going to happen. But then you're going to get horror fans who have not read the shadow glass, who are then going to come to this and go, oh, this is great. It's going to resonate with a different audience. Hopefully. Yeah, because yeah. I'm equally a fan of 90s horror as mm. I am of 80s fantasy. Yeah. So I would hope that is conveyed through the writing. Yeah, I think that the type of 80s fantasy, and it's covered in the shadow of how dark it was compared to 
children's fantasy more recently. There are some little dark elements in How to Train Your Dragon, but it's nothing <laughs> to what's going on in The Dark Crystal. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that when you've got that sort of darkness kind of ingrained, because also it, I feel that the people making it had a horror love in some of that fantasy. Yeah. That when The Princess Bride is directed by the same guy who did Misery. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's a perfect example. And so you get that. So when you're a little older, when you're a teenager, uh, coming from that as a youth, you, you aren't like naturally going into the more horror side of it. And you have got all the Nightmare on Elm Street films that you couldn't see but heard about as a kid you now have access to. And I think I went on a similar trajectory. Yeah, so many of those kids' things were terrifying. And I think mm. they were a gateway drug into the horror genre yeah. when you got older. Absolutely. Uh, the Lost Boys, Fright Night, they've got those yeah. sort of yeah. transitional <laughs> sort of movies. Even the Goonies. Of... Re- oh, I rewatched God, the yeah. Goonies last week and that's got some really dark stuff in it. The Fratellis are terrifying. Yeah. Also just some of the like adult language that... Mouth. Oh, mouth, yeah. When he's speaking Spanish and he's saying where, where all the drugs are kept. <laughs> and it's just like... <laughs> did not pick up on that when I was yeah. Also, you can't get away with a pirate called One-Eyed Willie in the like, modern day. <laughs> just... Yeah. And like the very first scene is a guy pretending to hang himself in jail. Yeah. I think that was actually cut out on British TV when it was on it was on TV. But yeah, there's some dark stuff in there. There really yeah. is. And yes, even Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom is a pretty much a horror as, as much as yeah. you can. Yeah. No, that's really cool. And Again, is this sort of you've not had to do much research because it's more of a distillation and it's more recent, I guess, like going back to the 90s, back to the 80s? I had to do research into sort of American geography okay. a little bit because it's all set in LA. And I have right. been to LA a fair bit, so I know the lay of the land there. But yeah, like in terms of like the surrounding areas, because the characters do start to move a little bit outside of LA, I did have to research the sort of like... I've been to the Mojave Desert, but I just remember being in it. I don't remember how you got there or what actually right. happens there. So I did a bit of research there. And like weirdly, um, I, can't, I won't really spoil what this research was, but there were moments when I did some research and it fitted so perfectly to what I was trying to do or it fitted like the name of something I'd already come up with or like just the vibe of the thing. I just was a bit freaked out actually by, I was like, is this book writing me? Like, yeah, it was really bizarre. No, absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Sometimes you just get these amazing historical details. GV Anderson is a award-winning short story writer who we've had on and she found a diary of, in the Second World War, which listed the air raids. And wow. so she could actually tie up like certain raids with certain yeah. events happening. And I so, love that stuff. Yeah. But yes, we won't spoil it, but it's nice when those things happen. Uh, yeah. So it's set in the 90s, I guess, if, if it's got these no, details. set no? Monday. Okay. Yeah. So the, yeah. the plot, the, the spiel for the plot is it's about a journalist who is sent to L.A., to report on a horror streaming series. And on the way there, she discovers that it's actually a remake of the cursed 90s horror film that she starred in as a child. Oh, okay. So it's playing around with like maybe a bit of poltergeist. It's very much about cursed films, like yeah. interrogating what it means to be a cursed film and that kind of stuff, but also like child stars. So yeah, hopefully it's like a fun new way of looking at quite a familiar thing, yeah. essentially. No, absolutely. 
And you said earlier, people might not like it as much as the shadow glass <laughs> and having that fear. Is there any kind of imposter syndrome now that yeah, sort of the shadow glass has hit and it, I feel it has resonated with a fair few people and you're getting that sort of feedback from the audience. Do you ever have like periods of doubt with Burn the Negative where you're like, have I misfired here? Or yeah, how's it getting through that book to, You know, if you get imposter syndrome? Yeah, the imposter is always there. It's the gremlin on your shoulder whispering mm. in your ear. It's just always there no matter what. And you spoke to Joanne Harris and she said that she constantly has imposter syndrome in all areas of her life. And I completely yeah. relate to that because you never feel like you've made it. My friend was saying to me, you've made it with the shadow glass. And I was like, yeah. I haven't made it. I've made a book. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't made it. There's always that sense of you're going to be found out or you're going to disappoint people or you've lost the spark. The ideas, they're not coming as easy as they used to. But I'm heartened by authors like Grady Hendrix, yes. who I think he, he tweeted recently saying, writing books gets harder because the more ground you cover, the fewer tricks or the little things that you've picked up over the mm. years, the fewer of those you have left and you have to come up with new ones. You, I think you're constantly... I feel like you should always be on receive mode rather than mm. transmit mode. I think right. that it's important to constantly be refueling your your reservoir of ideas or reservoir of creative mm. energy, looking for things that are interesting to you, learning about things, because I think that does help to start to, to hush up the imposter. I've not published many books, but I definitely think generally as a writer, I've reached a point where I know I can write competently. And that's quite a nice feeling because it's okay. Whatever I managed to get out today, there might be something in there that's usable. So that's nice. You're not battling with the language to the same degree that you may have been five or six years ago. But there, there is always that feeling of, oh, this one isn't coming together properly. Oh, I don't know about this one. <laughs> and it can happen a day after you've had a great writing day. Yeah. It's just a constant fight with the imposter, I think. I don't and imagine it'll ever go away. And do you have any sort of like writing rituals or any sort of good luck charms that help you through difficult bits? Or is it just, you just need to step away from the computer and maybe just go and watch a film? Yeah, I, I often go out for a run. I'm not a very fast runner. I don't run very far, but I do it and it clears my head. And sometimes I have a little idea on a run. I mean, most runs I go on, I do have a little sort of aha moment. Mm. And it can be as small as, oh, that chapter I've just written, actually, that needs to go a bit later. I need to put something else ahead of that. Or it can be, oh, I've been wor worrying about how I'm going to get that information across. What if I do it through this new character and come up with a new character? That's a good way of getting over the stresses of trying yeah. to be creative sometimes. And actually, that sort of brings a question to mind that if you're working three days a week and getting ideas on runs, are you someone who's a prolific note taker? Do you have a little notebook that you take out or when you're at work? It's just, oh, this is something when I'm back to writing on Friday, I'll put it down. Or do you have an app on your phone? Um, how do you record these ideas? Or do you just try and keep them in your brain in the hope that <laughs> if it's good, it'll stick? I have notes everywhere. If I haven't got my notebook on me, then I will write into the notes app on my phone. And if I 
haven't got that with me for some reason, I'll create a new draft of an email in Gmail and I'll just write a few notes in there and then save it to drafts. Nice. But it does get a bit confusing because I'm like, I'm pretty sure I had a really amazing idea related to this one thing, but where the hell is it? Nine times out of 10, I spend ages trying to find that idea. And when I do find it, it's actually rubbish. <laughs> but it's a bit of a chaotic setup. But I guess it's, I know that I've written it down somewhere just in case. Yeah. And having notebooks, do you find now that especially having a, a, your first book published and out in the world, are you now getting lots of friends and family buying you pens and notebooks as gifts? <laughs> I've always very nicely had people buying me notebooks. Always. The notebook that I used to plan out the shadow class, that was actually a notebook that my mum bought me when I was maybe 18, 19. Oh, wow. And I hadn't touched it. She passed away when I was 21 and I haven't touched it for years and years because I just didn't feel like there was anything worthy of that mm. notebook. And for some reason with the shadow glass, I was like, I think this is the time to use this one, actually. But yeah, I, I can have a notebook sitting there empty for years without using yeah. it. And then maybe the right project comes along and I'm like, right, okay, let's do this. Nice. And do you have a favoured pen? Do you uh, like clicky pens or just like a, <laughs> a standard big pen or fountain pens? Or is it just whatever's to hand? I like the gel roller yeah. pens just because it's you know, just the ink just comes out and it glides across the page. Yeah. Biros can be a bit sticky, a bit sort of scratchy, and they can come through the other side. If I'm getting like really quite angry in my writing, it can come through the other side. So I tend not to use biros and I haven't used a fountain pen since I was about 12 years old at school. <laughs> so definitely Fair not enough. going down that road. Yeah, so that's right. Some people I think can sometimes fetishize their writing implements. So it's always an interesting ask, I think. And yeah. I don't like Sharpies either. Like no. often if I go into a shop and say, would you like me to sign a copy of the book for you? They'll try to give me a Sharpie and I'm just like, no, get that thing away from me. That will destroy yeah. books. Yeah. So I use like a red gel pen to sign books. Okay. It's, it's just nicer, I think. Nice. That's good. Yeah. I have this theory that there's so many sort of pens and notebooks would be such a personal thing for writers that I would never dream of buying a notebook or pen because I feel like that's in hand they know what they they want and it also <laughs> just like you say having that this is the one for this project it's a very personal choice thing and you can have them that they're empty for years so it's my theory and I want to push this out into the ether that it's booze and loungewear uh, ah, is interesting generally it, and maybe not so much uh, booze now I think after the pandemic people are more uh, health conscious but a favored beverage um, yeah and so if you like English breakfast tea, some really nice sort of tea, maybe a teapot, but also comfy clothes. You work from home. I think a lot of people can now relate with working from home and yeah. a nice elasticated fleecy <laughs> brush cotton. It's like, oh, you're a writer. Here, have some cotton pajamas. Um, Absolutely. A nice cushion. Yeah. cushion. Very yes. much appreciate a cushion. I have noticed when I speak to because obviously this is just audio only, but I do have a visual, there is a cameras on, that when it's a writer who's been doing like, like maybe 10, 10, 15 years, and they're speaking to me from their writing desk, they have the most epic gamer's chair that, oh, they, yeah. that they write in. And I was like, that's actually, it's not typewriters anymore. It's not even really a nice laptop. It's the chair that you're sat in for hours of a day writing. This is so. the thing. This is, I feel like this is like the dark secret of writing that nobody ever talks about is actually how damaging it can be mm. to sit down all day for hours and hours. When I was sort of like 13, 14, I was a gymnast. 
Oh, I, I could hike my leg above my head. I could do the splits both ways. I could do backflips, cartwheels, all the, you know, all the good stuff. And now I can barely stand with my legs straight because I've spent so many hours sitting at a desk mm. and it's a real fight. I do yoga pretty much every day mm. and I do like little exercises or stretches that, that help. They're a pain and they're boring, but I do them. Yeah. And it really is a problem. It's a constant battle. Not only the imposter, you've got your yeah. back or your legs or your hips yeah. seizing up as well. So yeah. get a good chair. <laughs> yeah, a good chair, possibly a yoga mat, possibly yeah. a voucher for five free sports massages. If you've um, got a favourite author, buy them some deep heat. <laughs> there we go. That, no, that, that's the real writing process that, right there. Mm. <laughs> And we've talked about the vomit draft and getting things out and mapping things out. Once you've actually got your draft into a shape that you feel like, okay, I'm ready for someone else to read it now. Who's the first person to read your manuscript? Me, because what I do is I actually read it out to my partner and he's a writer as well. Mm. And he doesn't write fiction novels. He writes choice game adventure type things that you okay. can play on, on your phone. He puts me to shame because his books end up totaling about a million words each because there are so wow. many different choices Variables, you can make. Yeah. And I'm there going, I've just hit 40,000 words. I'm sorry, my phone's ringing. Okay. I've just cancelled the call. Okay. Actually, weirdly, that was my boyfriend. How bizarre. That's it. Yeah. He heard me talking about him. <laughs> yeah. The, the beast has been summoned from his lair. <laughs> Yeah. So I read it out to him first, just because he's got such a great grasp of story. It helps on so many levels because it means I can hear the story out loud for the first time. Yeah. And my boyfriend can give me feedback live. We read a chapter, then he'll give me his thoughts on that chapter. He's great for picking up on things that I would never have thought of, like deleting things that maybe make things more mysterious without being elusive and things like maybe slight sensitivity type stuff. Yeah. Maybe if I make a bad joke, he's like, nah, I think that actually probably is quite offensive. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, good. Good to know now. So that's my first port of call, basically, is reading it out to him. Then I'll give it another scrub. And either I'll send it to a friend, a writer friend who's sort of like, I call him my alpha beta, because he's just great. He's the first person I trust with mm. this sort of like wobbly newborn thing that i've just pushed out sorry that was really graphic and disgusting <laughs> that didn't go where i was That's expecting right. it to <laughs> but he's great he's just a great editor and so he'll give me his thoughts and then i'll send it to my agent or to my editor now that i'm in this two book contract thing yeah. i'll send to my editor and this it's a funny thing because now that i have that slight safety net of these professional people who are far and above more intelligent than me and know their stuff really well knowing that they're there is great in some ways because I feel like they will help me to make this the best thing it can mm. possibly be but there's also the, the twin fear of I'm going to send them a pile of crap and they're going to realize there's the imposter again they're going to realize yeah. I'm not what I, they thought I was or there's this thing of a slight thing of going oh that'll do because someone else is going to help me fix it mm. and actually that that's a weird thing that I've noticed happening recently where it, it's like no matter what I write it's gonna get changed anyway mm. and I have to really shut that voice up because you can't reach that point until you've taken the previous yeah. steps so that's a, a funny situation that I'm finding myself in at the moment 
Yeah. I think it's one of those, again, secret parts of the writing process is the relationship with an editor and having that balance where, yeah, you've got to trust them that they're right and that their criticisms are going to make it better. But at the same time, you can't be overly reliant on, well, I've got an idea. I've bashed out some words. Can you make it into a best-selling novel for me, please? <laughs> yeah, they're not going to write it for you. No, but yeah. yeah I think editors are the unsung heroes mm. of anything, yeah. books, TV, movie. They really are. Because like, an editor is there to support you and their job essentially is to help you figure out exactly what you were trying to say and maybe didn't quite manage to do. So my editor on The Shadow Glass was Craig Lyonar, who's, he was a Titan, he's now left. But he was fantastic because he would just ask questions and be like, I'm not really sure about this. And I would be like, oh, obviously this is what I meant. Oh, okay, it wasn't obvious. Let's figure <laughs> out a way to make it obvious. And he was great for pinpointing with surgical precision yeah. something that wasn't quite doing its job in the book mm. and helping me to figure out how to make it do its job essentially yeah. and the book is a hundred times better for his input mm. before that it was a hundred times better for my agent's input yeah. all these people you start to feel a bit like don't tell me the book's good if you liked it yeah tell all these other people who <laughs> were integral to creating yeah. this thing that just happens yeah. to have my name on it yeah, I think it's where I think of musicians and producers and it is mm. just that flourish. It is just that polish. And yeah, it is as, as much as people perceive an author as writing in isolation, there are these little collaborations uh, going on. And yeah, an editor is there to make the book the best it can be. And when it really clicks, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. Um, and they're the ones who bought the book in the first place. Yeah. They're the ones who, who let you in the door. So the book literally would not be there if that editor hadn't taken a chance on yeah. you or given you a contract, you know. Do you feel that working as a journalist for as long as you have has made you more robust to being edited? Because I guess a lot of people, when they're writing a debut novel and they get that first bunch of feedback, some people might want to go and have a cry or a stiff drink and a, a couple of days <laughs> quiet reflection before taking it on board. But I guess you've had your writing analyzed and critiqued for over a decade. Oh yeah. Like a hundred percent being a journalist helped with the sort of the nuts and bolts of being an author. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you're a journalist, well, with Total Film, we don't write in the first person, we write in the third person because we are total film. So when you're writing a review, you don't say, oh, I loved this because it's total film loved this because of mm. et cetera, et cetera. So you're always looking at this thing as a collaborative effort and you're all there to create the best thing you possibly can. Mm. And I definitely think that's shaped the way that I view the editing process for writing books as well, yeah. where it is a collaboration. And the end goal is to make this thing the absolute best thing it can yeah. possibly be. And it's in your interests to do that. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, absolutely. And it, that there have been journalists that I've worked with who are precious about their copy. And that's that's fine. That's just the way they are. But I think that it's beneficial to everyone if, if you're open to the idea that mm. you're not perfect. And maybe that isn't the best way to do something. Yeah. And it's a personal opinion might be a bit controversial. 
I feel that there are certain authors that when you get to a certain height of fame and power, uh, or no, not power, influence, that maybe they get to a point where they go, I know what I'm doing. And so the editor then is just more of a proofreader than an actual collaborative partner. And I think you can tell when those relationships change and an author suddenly goes, oh, they're not writing as, as well as they used to because the ego has got to a certain point. And yeah, they've parted ways with an editor and now they've just got a proofreader there. And I think that's a lesson for any author that just fight for the good editors. Make sure the good editors are well paid as well, because I think that's a, a thing I see on Twitter at the moment. And as someone who has no skin in the game, I can get on a soapbox and say this, is that there's a lot of editors who are overworked and underpaid and they're leaving in the industry and mm. the industry and books and readers and authors are suffering for it. Absolutely. God yeah. damn it, pay them a, a decent wage. You've got two projects on the go. I think we've talked about Burn the Negative a fair bit. You have a personal project that I appreciate you may want to keep quite close to your chest, but is there anything about that? Is it a different genre again? And what was it that sparked off, okay, I've got this under contract, but I need to start working on this other project just for me? So Burn the Negative is in, in layout. So the next book I'm working on is book two for Putnam. And then I've got another one additional to that, which is out of contract. So I've got two projects that aren't burn the negative on the go yeah. right now, which is nice. I like being, being able to like jump between projects and there are different stages of development mm. to use like a film analogy. So the one that I'm currently reading out to my partner is a YA. So it's a different market to burn the negative and the characters themselves I've had for years. I think I had a first attempt at writing them for NaNoWriMo in maybe 2018. And I got about 50,000 words in and I didn't really know, it didn't feel right for some reason. And it's complicated because it's about teenagers with like special abilities, essentially. Okay. And that just makes things so complicated. It was birthed out of my love for TV shows like Charmed and Buffy the mm. Vampire Slayer and like Roswell, mm. all those great 90s SFF shows. Yeah. And it's only when you really start to try to do what they did every single goddamn week that yeah. you realize how difficult it is because you're trying to do the interpersonal drama stuff. You're trying to do plotty, pushing the plot stuff along. And then if you throw in special abilities as well, it's just like another added complication mm. that you have to consider. And in some ways that stuff is really fun and it's almost like a way of externalizing your character's internal world because their abilities can be used in an emotional way, which is what I've tried to do. But then it also throws up problems like if they're being attacked and they've got their telekinetic, they can literally do anything to defend themselves. So I've been having fun trying to come up with the rules yeah. for these abilities that they have and what their limits are, because without limits, it becomes like Eternals, the Marvel yeah. film, which I really didn't like. So yeah, so it's been it's been a fun, long process on that one. And basically I kind of shifted genre. I was writing it very much as a fantasy, but it's become more of a small town mystery, which seems to be working better somehow. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, sometimes when you have these big ideas, but put them in small town environments, and just get those yeah. interpersonal stakes. Uh, rather than like yeah. the world is going to end, it's more, yeah, those sort of like personal development things. Uh, yeah, and I had to find the town. I can't really 
right until I have the setting really clear in my mind. And so the town, when I first started writing it, the town was just this sort of like bland, nothing town, middle America. You've seen thousands of those towns on movies and TV. And I was just a bit like, there has to be something more to this town, especially if there are people here with special abilities. And so when I came up with something I've never seen before with this town, and suddenly it became somewhere I wanted to be. It became a, a town I wanted to write about and be in with these characters. And it really launched me into writing for that one. Okay, so uh, is it based on a real place or is it just like the concept of that middle town, the like sort of political societal standpoint of it? Yeah, it's, it's not based on a real place. So there's something that happened to the town okay. on the millennium that has had like ripple effects throughout the rest of the story. And the main characters fall into uncovering what happened. And it's a physical thing that happened to the town. It's like, it's a visible thing that's happened to this town that people are either ignoring or trying to bulldoze over. There's lots of different agendas flying around. Yeah, it's like, a, it's fun, it's complicated. And that means it's both a joy and a pain to write. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think... Clearly, it's just like pushing yourself into a different genre as well. But also, like you say, it's a, it's a different readership. And yeah. I guess when it's a standard novel where it's not pitched to an age group, you don't have to filter yourself in language or violence and things like that. But when writing younger, it's not just taking the swear words out. It's having people that they can relate to going through the, the challenges that resonate with people of that age. So how's that challenge? Has that been something that you've had to research, like reading a lot of YA? Oh, yeah. Like I read a fair amount of YA anyway. And there are books like Clown in a Cornfield by Adam Caesar, which is brilliant. It's a slasher novel, very much inspired by 90s slasher movies, Mm. but it's a YA. And he goes to some real extremes in that book that you might not necessarily think you would find in YA. Yeah. And it's brilliant. It just doesn't hold back. And books like Harrow Lake by Kat Ellis, and she did Wicked Little Deeds as well, where sort of small town, weird Americana type stuff. Mm. So I've definitely got those two in mind while writing this. I think there is a slight feeling of worrying about writing teenagers, how they talk to each other. You know, I've watched a bit of the new Gossip Girl TV series and um, the way they talk to each other is just completely out of my grasp. I just can't write that kind of dialogue. But I think I've read somebody talking about writing teenage dialogue. And I think it might have been um, Sadie Hartman, who's a big horror person on Twitter. And she kind of said, I hate it when writers use slang that immediately dates Mm. whatever you're reading. So I'm steering clear of anything too slangy and just trying to have the characters speak in a way that's authentic Mm. to their personality rather than worrying too much about if I'm writing authentic teenagers. Yeah. Also, I wanted to ask, because obviously you have these characters that go through big change. Do you find yourself having moments of reflection and questioning your own life and the way that you behave around people that you go, oh, actually, this is almost a form of therapy for me. And Mm. writing YA, have you really had to revisit your teenage years and you know, have you now got a new perspective on your childhood? Oh man, <laughs> getting deep now. I know we're really going there. I do remember being very shy, quiet, nervous teenager. But all of the characters that I loved on 
teen TV shows were the opposite of that. So that's what I write, essentially. Like, whenever I've written teenagers, I haven't written what I was like as a teenager. Because, frankly, it's really boring. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if it's made me reappraise my past. I think The Shadow Glass made me... I was conscious that I was writing it around the time that I was spending a lot of time with my dad. The book itself is about this complicated relationship between the main character and his deceased father. And I was spending a lot of time with my dad at that time because there was some family stuff going on. And I think I only really realized a couple of weeks ago that I think the shadow glass is me coming to terms with my dad's mortality, essentially. And thinking he is going to be gone at some point, you know, it seems like he's been around forever, especially after my mum passed away. It's like dad has been this constant presence. Mm. And the older I get, the older he gets, he's 71 now. And it's a bit like, yeah, he is going to be gone one day. And it's like, a, it's such a big thing to try to understand. And I think the shadow glass played a part in that. What was the rest of the question? <laughs> well, it was, it was just, yeah, no, I think you answered it. It was just having characters that go through change. Do they change you? And have you oh, yeah. felt that you've had change? I do think that my characters help me examine a, a portion of myself. Definitely. Mm. In, in the shadow glass, Jack, his philosophy or his flaw is basically, if I don't commit to anything, I can never fail at anything. Mm. And I don't know that I go quite that far. But I do think that committing to something is a big deal. Even just committing to publishing a book, it's a big deal. It, yeah. it makes you visible. It makes people think they know you or yeah. you're approachable and people want to talk to you. And I enjoy interacting with people, but at the same time, I do find it hugely anxiety inducing as well. And like when I do events and stuff, the attention, the pressure of the attention, it takes me a long time to depressurize when I get home afterwards. And it's not like I'm Stephen King or V.E. Schwab or anything. I'm not getting that much attention. But just the fact of it does make me anxious. So, yeah, I find it interesting to think about a character and then figure out how I relate to them and then how I would like to explore that person, definitely. And I've definitely changed, you know? (laughs) When I think back to 10 years ago, I was going out clubbing. I don't do that anymore. Even the thought of sitting in the pub sometimes is a bit overwhelming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go on to my final two questions because it's on the same sort of theme of learning about yourself. Because it's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. Is there anything that has now shaped the way that you're writing and approaching your YA and your second contracted book? I'm definitely writing shorter initially. The Shadow Glass, the first draft was ridiculously long. It was about 110, 120,000 words. Wow. I did a second draft that cut it down to 94, 95, and that's what I pitched to my agent. And then when we pitched that to Titan, we'd cut it down to about 83,000 words. But then through my edits for Titan, it went back up to (laughs) 94,000 words. So I'm very aware of the, the length thing and I'm also aware of the fact that I need to know the skeleton of the story I need to like excavate that skeleton you know I'm like buddy Sam Neill in Jurassic Park I need to find (laughs) that I need to find that buried skeleton before I can add any meat to it Mm. so the first draft of this YA thing is like 44,000 words which is very short you know that's Mm. basically just over a novella Mm. but I know when it's done it'll probably be about 75 80 Mm -hmm. 
because I need to have the skeleton there to figure out which bits to amplify, which mm. bits to add meat to, which avenues maybe I could have gone down and there's room to now and I haven't yet. So I think that's definitely something I've learned is beneficial. There is part of me that's like, it's too short. It's too short. It's never going to get published. You're never going to mm. be able to add any words, but I will be able to add words through the various stages of editing. And I'd rather it was lean than bloated. Yeah. And I think if it gives you focus on what you're trying to say, it's not, okay, how can I make this as concise as possible? It's going, how can I illustrate this point to its fullest? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what's missing? I think it's easier mm. to see what's missing once you have a complete version of that thing. Yeah, absolutely. And as someone who's written basically their entire adult life, and you've um, mentioned people who've inspired you in writing books and the advice they've given, is there one piece of advice that really resonates with you that you always keep in mind with your own writing? I think it goes back to the lean thing where I'm always thinking about condensation. <laughs> <laughs> Not the stuff on the windows. Um, I had a, a great tutor at university. I did a screenwriting module and she worked in soaps. She worked on EastEnders oh, wow. and brevity was really important to her. And we wrote a short script as part of our module. And she was great at saying, could you combine two scenes? Could you combine two characters? How could you find a way to make this both move faster and feel less unwieldy? And so I'm always thinking about condensing things down, trying to make scenes really earn their keep. I think mm -hmm. that's probably something I've learned from journalism is basically the, the mantra of every word has to earn its place on the page. And that's literally because you're being paid by the word if you're yeah. working, if you're freelance. You know, you, you learn self-editing and self-discipline and also they're paying me money for this. So do I need that word in there? Is that actually earning yeah. its keep or is it just sort of I threw it in there and it's not doing anything? So yeah, yeah condensation is a big thing. Excellent. That's all we have time for this week. But uh, Josh Winning, I'd like to thank you so much for being my guest on The Real Writing Process. Thank you so much. It's been great to chat to you. And that was The Real Writing Process of Josh Winning. His debut novel, The Shadow Glass, is out now. I fully recommend you buy it, read it, and then buy copies for all your friends and family. I assure you, Every word has earned its place on the page. Also, you can now pre-order his next book, Burn the Negative. It's released on the 11th of July, 2023, so order it now and that's your summer read sorted. And if you'd like to hear more from Josh, then I do recommend you follow him on Instagram. He does Instagram live chats with other authors and they're very good. Uh, he also has a Linktree page with all his links in, so that's in the show notes and it links to everything he does and what's coming out. It's great. And uh, that's it for this episode. More episodes will be coming as I have a stack of interviews already recorded and there's a few more lined up. I don't think I need to explain why the episodes are delayed. I think a lot of us are processing the same trauma. But in the meantime, look after yourselves and keep writing until the world ends.
Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and goodbyes. Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call. Shift and pull up the tides, never 